Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Hello, this is Nick Galetti. I'm usually the host of the Good Word Podcast, and I listen to the the Mormon Discussion Podcast on a regular basis, and I appreciate Bill Real for giving me this opportunity to share a couple thoughts of mine uh, on a particular talk that meant a great deal to me. It was a talk by Brother James Rasband, a talk called Faith to Forgive Grievous Harms, Accepting the Atonement as Restoration. Now, James Rasband served as dean of the J. Reuben Clark Law School at Brigham Young University and is the Hugh W. Colton Professor of Law. Rasband received a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University and his law education at Harvard Law School. After school, he clerked for a judge in the United States Court of Appeals. He then worked as a lawyer at a Seattle law firm where he was a specialist in public land law and natural resources law. In 1995, he joined the faculty of the BYU Law School. From 2004 to 2008, Rasband served as Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at BYU Law School. Then he took the position as the Associate Academic Vice President for Faculty at BYU. In June 2009, he was named Dean of the BYU Law School. James Rasband and his wife, Mary Rasband, are the parents of four children. Now, why go through this this brief biography on, on James Rasband? Well, I want to go through a BYU devotional that he gave back on the 23rd of October, 2012. And again, he actually gave the same talk at BYU Hawaii in February of 2013. So sharing his biography is, is part to show that he's a, a highly accomplished individual and it's not without, you know, he's not without education or experience on the topic that he presents on. 
But I also feel that when, when one ventures to discuss a subject as deep and as personal as the atonement, having some background information on the author helps to, to place their words in context. Now, James Rasband is a lawyer, which means that he will approach much of his life in terms of, of right and wrong, or more specifically, what is legal and unlawful. He'll also speak of things in terms of restitution for offenses given. Why I feel that this approach is, is relevant is because, at least in part, I believe that God operates on laws and that Jesus Christ often spoke of that role, uh, the role of the atonement, with respect to laws. At different times in our lives, we feel that we want justice, and other times we want mercy. The beauty of the atonement is that it answers all the demands of both justice and the divine hand of mercy with absolute perfection and, and totality. I highly recommend listening or viewing the entire presentation and a link, a link rather to the talk, uh, will be found on the post for this episode at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. But for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to insert some quotes to help give context to my own commentary on that talk. Uh, there'll be clips from his actual presentation given at the October uh, 2012 presentation at BYU. Uh, I'm not the type of person who considers gospel talks or devotionals to be life-changing experience, at least most of the time. Instead, they tend to add a sort of pool of gospel, they add to this pool of gospel knowledge and understanding. So when I say that this talk by James Rasband made such a significant impact on my outlook in life, uh, it contributed tremendously to my understanding of the atonement and increased my, my love and appreciation for Jesus Christ as Savior of the world in such a way that, that I placed it in this category of life-changing talk. Now, I want you to know that for me personally, that is not hyperbole. I, I hope that doesn't oversell his message, but I hope that through your experience with, with my commentary and more so with Brother Rasband's talk directly, that you too will be able to experience the atonement on a deeper level. For those that are carrying with you some kind of hurt or offense, some life experience where you feel you've been unjustly or unmercifully dealt with, keep in your mind those issues or, or challenges that weigh on your mind and seek a reconciliation with the Lord with those issues through the things that you're going to hear. And for those of you that are navigating a faith crisis, either due to someone who may have offended you or because you struggle with the flaws of, of church leaders or because you find yourself struggling with personal sins or addictions, you may find an answer that will calm the storm you find yourself in. You may be like I was and find additional strength to being a better parent uh, or spouse I also believe that there's answers in this talk that, if applied directly, will save 99% of all marriages. Now, I realize that's a huge claim, but I intend to show that it's not my claim, but a promise held deep within the power of the atonement. Now, let's start out with the first quote from Brother Rasband's talk. 
to to start out, Brother Rasban introduces the concept of forgiveness. Let me start with a familiar scripture. Matthew 18, 21 and 22 reads, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times Jesus, Jesus saith unto him, I say that unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Have you or a family member or a friend ever been terribly hurt by someone and found it difficult to forgive, even once, let alone until seventy times seven? In such cases do we say to ourselves, the Lord can't really mean that I should forgive that sort of sin or abuse. Yet it seems clear that the Lord really does mean it. Our very salvation depends upon us being willing to forgive others. As Christ taught, quote, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, close quote. That our own forgiveness should be conditioned on forgiving others can be a hard doctrine, particularly if the sin against us was horribly wrong and out of all proportion to any harm we've ever committed. Even harder, the Lord has indicated in modern revelation that, quote, he that forgiveth not his brother, his, his trespasses, standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin, close quote. This is a very strong statement. If we refuse to forgive, there remaineth in us the greater sin. How can this be? As I hope to explain, our salvation is conditioned on forgiving others because when we refuse to forgive, what we're really saying is that we don't quite trust the Lord or that we reject his atonement. And it is our acceptance of the atonement that ultimately saves us. I hear two key points in this first passage that really fall under the same principle. The subtext of this quote is that forgiveness never faileth. We must constantly seek for forgiveness for our own wrongs, and we must be also willing to forgive if we're expected to be found forgiven at all. The reverse of this is also true. If we choose not to forgive others, we are caught in the perpetual sin that will lead us away from God the Father and Jesus Christ and will disqualify us for the companionship of the Spirit. Now, catalog these ideas as we is we seek to give an answer to those personal and individual scenarios mentioned earlier. Uh, let's continue now. Brother Rasband goes on to say the following. Why is it that we sometimes have trouble accepting the atonement as recompense for the harms we suffer at others' hands? My experience is that we can sometimes forget that the atonement has two sides. Usually when we think about the atonement, we focus on how mercy can satisfy the demands that justice would impose upon us. We are typically quicker to accept the idea that when we sin and make mistakes, the atonement is available to pay our debts. Forgiveness requires us to consider the other side of the atonement, a side that we don't think about as often, but that is equally critical. That is the atonement's power to satisfy our demands of justice against others, to fulfill our rights to restitution and being made whole. We often don't quite see how the atonement satisfies our own demands, but it does so. It heals us not only for the guilt we suffer when we sin, but it also heals us from the sins and hurts of others. If there is a thesis statement to the remainder of his talk, it's this last quote. 
it is so important to the rest of this presentation. I want to share it again and, and make sure to pay particular attention and keep this section uh, cataloged in your brain. Why is it that we sometimes have trouble accepting the atonement as recompense for the harms we suffer at others' hands? My experience is that we can sometimes forget that the atonement has two sides. Usually when we think about the atonement, we focus on how mercy can satisfy the demands that justice would impose upon us. We are typically quicker to accept the idea that when we sin and make mistakes, the atonement is available to pay our debts. Forgiveness requires us to consider the other side of the atonement, a side that we don't think about as often, but that is equally critical. That is the atonement's power to satisfy our demands of justice against others, to fulfill our rights to restitution and being made whole. We often don't quite see how the atonement satisfies our own demands, but it does so. It heals us not only for the guilt we suffer when we sin, but it also heals us from the sins and hurts of others. Now, Brother Rasband goes on and gives an analogy, or a, a metaphor of sorts, to help illustrate this principle. To help explain the two sides of the atonement, let me try a rather homely analogy. Like most analogies and metaphors, it's not perfect in all respects. I hope, though, that it can aid understanding. Suppose I find myself in a home built for me by a very generous landlord. It is a nice home. He encourages me to maintain and improve the home and gives me a number of instructions for making the home a nice place to live. Over the years, I sometimes improve the home, but other times, through my negligence, I make it worse. One time, I flood the home when I fail to set the faucets to drip during a freeze. Another time, my kitchen catches fire because I fail to turn off a burner on the stove. A couple of times, I lose my temper and put my fist through a wall. In each instance, the landlord forgives me and encourages me to pay a little closer attention to my home and to his instructions for making the home a joyful place to live. He does not charge me for the damage caused by my mistakes. Instead, sometimes he's patient while I figure out how to fix things on my own. Sometimes he sends someone over to fix the problem. And sometimes I wake up and things are fixed in ways I don't quite understand. The same landlord happens to have a son who is quite wayward. The son is always up to no good, and I don't particularly like or respect him. One night, the landlord's son is a prank, sets fire to the shed attached to the back of my house. The fire gets out of control, and the entire house burns down. I lose the home. I lose all of my possessions, including some particularly valuable possessions that I can't replace, such as photos and heirlooms. I'm angry and distraught. I want the no-good son to pay. I want him to fix things and to make me whole. A part of me knows, though, that he can't really make it better. He may not have the resources to rebuild the house, and even if he could rebuild the house, he can't retrieve the photos and heirlooms, and that makes me even angrier. As I sit in anger, the landlord comes to visit me. He reminds me that he has promised to take care of me. He promises me that he's willing to rebuild my house. In fact, he says he'll do more than that. He will replace my house with a castle and then give me all that he himself has. He says that this might take a while, but he promises that it will happen. What's the catch, I say? Here are the conditions, he says. First, you need to put your faith in me and trust that I really will build you that castle and restore all that you've lost. Second, you need to continue to work on implementing the instructions I gave you about keeping up your house. Finally, 
you need to forgive my arsonist son, just as I've forgiven you all these many years. Now, it sounds easy enough, and it seems like an obviously great deal. But why might it be hard for the tenant to accept the landlord's offer? Or to move away from the analogy, why is it sometimes so hard for us to forgive others? Let me suggest some reasons. First, we're probably angry. We want the arsonist to pay. But if we harbor this sort of anger, we may spend so much time pursuing the person who burned down our house that we don't get around to rebuilding it. As someone once said, resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. It also might be hard to forgive because we can't quite believe the landlord will fulfill his promise. He's never failed us when we've messed up before. But what about this time? Besides, it's usually easier for us to believe that the Lord will forgive our mistakes. This time, it's someone else's mistake or sin. Trust can be particularly difficult if the rebuilding project will take time. We want things fixed now, not later. Trust may also be harder in the cases of losses and hurts that do not seem easily fixable. Perhaps the landlord can rebuild the home, but can he really replace the photos and heirlooms? What if we lost a child in the fire? Can he really take away that pain? My testimony is that the atonement really can make us completely whole, even for those things that seem like they can't be fixed or repaired. As Isaiah foretold of the Savior, quote, The Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort all that mourn, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Close quote. Now, I recognize that this doctrine, that the atonement can heal us from the hurts of others, is one that's well established. Yet in my experience, it remains difficult to trust and accept that the atonement serves this purpose. My hope is that I can add to what's previously been said on this topic and help remove some barriers to forgiveness by offering some reasons why we should trust the Lord's promise. It's here that I want to consider the different houses, quote-unquote, in our lives. Consider the family heirlooms, the, the pictures, those things that we look at and consider to be of great worth, if not irreplaceable worth. Can those things include our time? our earthly possessions, maybe even our marriage covenant and relationship. Could be our testimonies or our place in the church and gospel of Jesus Christ. Many mortal experiences and relationships can also fit into this metaphor as being these houses. Now, I'm a father of five girls and have been married for over 12 years I'm a sound engineer working with bands and, and corporate clients at conventions, and that's my trade. I've worked retail jobs. I was a real estate agent and did home loans for a period as well. I am, one could say, routinely annoyed by individuals from a variety of sources. Uh, that annoyance tends to feel like someone is taking my time in such a way that I feel it's a wasted effort. Uh, or not the highest and best use of my time. As a result, I, I tend to see these individuals and scenarios as stealing from me. Uh, they've stolen my time. And I could be working on my job or something I want to do. Instead, I have to clean up the mess my children make or deal with a client that can't seem to just buy what I'm selling and needs to micromanage that thing that I'm the specialist at doing, you know, etc. 
once that time has passed, so has the opportunity for me to accomplish the work that I wanted to do. Or so I tend to view things that way. I get annoyed by those things when really deep down inside, I feel as if that person has taken from me that which cannot be restored. That annoying influence in my life tends to manifest itself externally as, as anger or stress. But internally, it's a, it's very easy to harbor a sense of loss that can create enmity be- between me and those individuals, not unity, harmony, or, or love as Jesus Christ would, would have it. So for me, one of my houses was this idea that time, or rather opportunity was lost or stolen from me unjustly. For some in a marriage, we might see the actions of a spouse as some personal injury or or loss of happiness that was unjustly meted out. In fact, some serious instances where covenants have been seriously violated might seem unforgivable and that no such restitution can be made or should be made for that matter. For those that are offended by someone at church or feel that the actions of another have injured their discipleship in some way as a result, it can feel as if the very core of our testimony has been taken from us by a a spiritual thief and that the only way to protect ourselves from future harm is to lock ourselves away or lock our testimonies away, put up an alarm system that is hypersensitive motion detectors and People need to pass a serious background check before they are safe enough to hear that testimony that is locked deep away in a safe place where no one else can harm it. Maybe you've had to ask yourself the almost cliche question, why me, when it comes to issues of job loss or a challenging child or lack of children or spouse kind of scenario? Perhaps there's a feeling that these issues are not out of your control, or maybe they are out of your control and that some injustice has been injected into your life undeservingly or maybe even deservingly, but nevertheless, you feel some sense of injury as a result. Perhaps there are those where there's unrest with a particular event in church history or practice that has fertilized a faith crisis, a crisis where that bridge between Christ and his church seems to be burned or damaged by the acts of a leader or maybe even something that was read on the internet that fed a a spirit of distrust. Let's look at all these scenarios. Let's take a second to identify those feelings of hurt, of loss, or injury. Let's look to those feelings and events in some deep and searching way, even those even those events that may seem in some unrelenting way and and really understand that those feelings are valid. They're real. They have a purpose. Even more importantly, it's important for us to know that those feelings and scenarios have an answer. As part of learning that answer, and even more importantly, feeling confidence in the answer for our own lives and scenarios, let's look further to the doctrine of the atonement from Brother Rasband's presentation as it relates to the Mosaic Law. Remember that Paul taught that the Mosaic Law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Remember also Christ's statement to his disciples in his Sermon on the Mount. 
Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Close quote. Think about Christ's statement for a minute. Christ was comforting his faithful disciples, those who loved and revered and followed the law of Moses. He was making sure they knew that his plan was to fulfill all the terms of the Mosaic law. But what exactly were those terms that he would fulfill? Our answer to this question typically focuses on the portion of the Mosaic law that addressed Israel's obligation to make sacrifices. We tend to emphasize the Savior's admonition that, quote, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, and that instead we should, quote, offer for a sacrifice a broken heart and a contrite spirit, close quote. Our usual focus on the law of sacrifice is, again, on ourselves what sacrifices we need to offer up to access the power of the atonement and heal our feelings of guilt and remorse. But the law of sacrifice was just one component of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law also included dietary laws and criminal laws. Remember the lex talionis of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It also included civil laws that today we might recognize as tort law or contract law. Isn't it plausible that when the Savior said he came to fulfill the law, he was talking about more than just the law of sacrifice. Shouldn't we take him at his word that one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled? Now, although I'm not an expert on the Mosaic law and surely do not understand exactly how Christ fulfilled the law in all of its dimensions, let me suggest that the atonement did, in fact, answer other demands of the Mosaic law. Specifically, I want to focus on the civil law component of the Mosaic Law and its requirement that restitution be made to persons harmed by the wrongful actions of another. I do so because the restitution requirement is so important to understanding the doctrine of forgiveness. Exodus 21 and 22 set forth several such restitution requirements. Consider two of many examples. If a person caused a fire to break out, so that, the stand, so that, quote, the standing corn or the field be consumed therewith, um, he that kindled the fire was required to make restitution, close quote. Similarly, if someone caused his livestock to graze in the field or vineyard of another, he was obligated to, quote, make restitution out of the best of his own field and of the best of his own vineyard, close quote. This concept of restitution remains a key part of our law today. Under tort law, which is just another word for personal injury law, courts can award damages to persons injured by the negligence of another. Similarly, under contract law, damages may be awarded to those harmed by breach of contract. In the criminal context, many states allow crime victims and their families to prepare what are called victim impact statements, which describe the way in which they've been harmed. The basic point is that just like current law, The Mosaic Law was not designed only to punish the wrongdoer. The Mosaic Law also existed to protect, compensate, and make whole those harmed by others, whether intentionally or negligently. If Christ came to fulfill all the terms of the law, this part of the Mosaic Law should also be fulfilled by the Atonement. If the ultimate promises of the Atonement are that we can receive all that the Father hath, then what loss will we have? 
So what if our children make a mess or start crying for something that we may see as no big deal or crash our family car when driving without permission? In the end, the justice of God, along with his mercy, made operable through the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ, will provide us with everything, and we can be restored with every loss or injury. While we might wonder how this is to work, there are some things that we still leave to faith, but that is, at least at this point in our eternal existence, that's intentional. We're supposed to learn by faith until we come to a more perfect knowledge. That more perfect knowledge is worth searching for, pondering for, and praying for. So how then does this principle work in a practical way? Let's say someone has done to us some degree of harm, large or small. How do we then seek to move forward with a steadfast faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement? Now, it's critical to understand that forgiving others is not just a practical virtue. It's a profound act of faith in the atonement and the promise that the Savior's sacrifice repays not just our debts to others, but also the debts of others to us. In our live-and-let-live society, we may believe that forgiving is just etiquette and good manners. It is not. We may think that forgiveness requires us to let mercy rob justice. It does not. Forgiveness does not require us to give up our right to restitution. It simply requires that we look to a different source. The non-judgmental worldly phrases, don't worry about it and no big deal, are not illustrations of the doctrine of forgiveness. On the contrary, when a person sins against us, it can be a very big deal. The point is that the atonement is very big compensation that can take care of very big harms. Forgiveness doesn't mean minimizing the sin. It means maximizing our faith in the atonement. My greatest concern is that if we wrongly believe forgiveness requires us to minimize the harms we suffer, this mistaken belief will be a barrier to developing a forgiving heart. It is okay to recognize how grave a sin is and to demand our right to justice if our recognition triggers gratitude for the atonement. Indeed, the greater the sin against us, the greater the harm that we suffer, the more we should value the atonement. Consider Christ's parable of the two debtors from Luke chapter 7. Quote, And there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he, Christ, said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Close quote. If Simon is correct that the greater sinner will love the Lord even more, doesn't the same reasoning suggest that our love for the Savior will increase when he pays a particularly large debt owed to us? There is little value in claiming that a wrong against us is slight. Instead, if we give the wrong its full weight, we are better able to give the Lord a full measure of our gratitude for making us whole. And when we understand that the Lord promises us restitution, we can recognize that our anger at our victimizer is ultimately unnecessary. This, in turn, helps free us to love our enemy as the Savior commanded. In sum, 
The principle of forgiveness does not require that we give up our right to justice or that we give up our right to restitution. Christ answers the demands of the law for our sins and for the sins of others. We just have to be willing to accept that he has the power to do so. For me, this was probably the most profound portion of his talk. In some cases, I felt that when I was wronged, the answer was always to minimize what I was feeling because that would make it easier to deal with. On a more practical level, this helped me to be more, this, this talk helped me to be more Christ-like in my own treatment of others because as Brother Rasband quoted in Matthew 5, it helped me to feel free, I guess, to love my enemies in more modern terms to, to those who I feel have wronged me in some way. I wasn't so consumed by that thing which I lost, but trusted that it would be made whole. I needed to look to a, a different source for restitution than from the person who may have done the wrong. Whether it be a spouse, a child, a co-worker, a bishop, even an apostle or prophet, if there was some injury given, regardless of, of how unintentional or intentional, if there was something or someone that wronged me, I now feel and felt when I heard this talk more free to love them. Even more importantly, I can understand that the same power of the atonement that would be working in my life to help make me whole is the same power that can work in that individual's life and make them whole for the things that I may have done to them or that someone else may have done to them as well. Now, this brings us back to the first quote from Brother Rasband's talk. I want to play it again to help place things back into context, only now perhaps with a, a new and, and hopefully heightened perspective. Let me start with a familiar scripture. Matthew 18, 21 and 22 reads, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times Jesus, Jesus saith unto him, I say that unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Have you or a family member or a friend ever been terribly hurt by someone and found it difficult to forgive, even once, let alone until seventy times seven? In such cases, do we say to ourselves, the Lord can't really mean that I should forgive that sort of sin or abuse. Yet it seems clear that the Lord really does mean it. Our very salvation depends upon us being willing to forgive others. As Christ taught, quote, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, close quote. That our own forgiveness should be conditioned on forgiving others can be a hard doctrine, particularly if the sin against us was horribly wrong and out of all proportion to any harm we've ever committed. Even harder, the Lord has indicated in modern revelation that, quote, he that forgiveth not his brother, his, his trespasses, standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin, close quote. This is a very strong statement. If we refuse to forgive, there remaineth in us the greater sin. How can this be? As I hope to explain, our salvation is conditioned on forgiving others because when we refuse to forgive, what we're really saying is that we don't, 
quite trust the Lord or that we reject his atonement. And it is our acceptance of the atonement that ultimately saves us. One blessing of our acceptance of the atonement for the grievous harms that have been done against us is that we don't let them fester. We stop seeing people as our enemies, uh, but as our brothers and sisters. Why, why does that change? Well, for me, it was because I didn't feel that they were doing things to cause me harm or to take from me. And even if they were, that's okay. I will be made whole. Now, Brother Rasban concludes, and then I, I'll conclude with my own thoughts and applications. We can't have faith in only one side of the atonement. To be efficacious, to have saving power, our faith in Christ and his atonement must include both his power to pay for our sins and his power to pay for the sins of others. Harking back to my landlord-tenant analogy, sometimes we burn the house down through our own carelessness. We play with fire. Sometimes the house burns down through no fault of our own. Lightning strikes, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Sometimes our house burns down because of the sins of others, the landlord's arsonist son, in my analogy. The wonder of the atonement is that it works for all three. But our own receipt of the atonement is conditional on forgiving others. If we do that, accept Christ, and strive to keep his commandments, we will receive the castle and all that all else the Father has. For those that have been wronged by a spouse, perhaps they've cheated on you or are emotionally or physically abusive. This may seem like a particularly hard doctrine, if not out of touch. I wish to submit to you that those who abuse often do so because they seek for power over the individual. It's not an easy thing to do, but the goal needs to be to not give them any more power than they have already sought to take. Don't allow those individuals to to continue to take from you the happiness that you desire and deserve. The longer we choose to not forgive, the longer they have a hold. I realize that this takes time and that the way seems hard and sometimes overwhelming. But the way to do that is through forgiveness and the power of the atonement. Look to Christ to make you whole. For those that have been wronged or at least perceived to have been wronged based on the behavior of children, it's understandable to feel as though your life has been completely derailed by those things that demand constant attention. I encourage you to feel what you're feeling and come to an understanding that you're a child of your Heavenly Father. And we, too, create a lot of messes. We take up a lot of God's eternity with all kinds of issues. Just as he has promised to make us whole and we keep the commandments and have faith in him and his son, we should, in turn, seek to be that to our children as much as is possible. Now, how do we do that? We look to the atonement. We seek to more fully emulate Jesus Christ's life and example. We seek to understand that our children are great. They are important, and spending time parenting is no loss. In fact, it's a great blessing, even if there is some loss as a result. Through the atonement, we will be made whole for those things that we see as a sacrifice. This is the part that I'm having the hardest time with right now in my life. But I've started to feel the change 
I've started to feel an increase of love. The effect of that change in me has manifested in a change in my children. They seem to be more loving and more kind. And in some way, we have broken this chain of loss and misery. It's no longer this adversarial relationship that I don't know where that even came from. But I have to restart that process from time to time because I have to break a cycle that would produce different results. I can use the sacrament now to renew that commitment to my family and to God for whom we're really stewards to his children. And that's the promise that we've made as parents. For those that are navigating a faith crisis, either because of some doctrinal or social conflict, perhaps it's because you saw something in Joseph Smith's history, the uh, practice of polygamy, the treatment of some to those of, of, of other races or cultures. Maybe even this faith crisis is the result of sin or excommunication. I want to offer you this short story, and I hope it's of value to you. This is an experience that changed my perspective on those who have left the church or who are thinking about leaving the church as a result of, of one or more of those things that we may look at as offenses. Um, I had the opportunity, if you wish to see it as an opportunity, to interview an individual who wrote a book about Jesus Christ, but who has also come to find out, resigned his position with the church. I, I do so as part of my podcast, The Good Word, where I interview LDS authors about their books. I interviewed this individual, but when it was discovered that they were not a member and, in fact, held some hostilities towards some of the church and its teachings, I simply opted not to air the episode as it no longer really fit my format. During the course of the interview, the individual brought up some concerns about Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith's accounts of the first vision, something that I, I believe has been answered sufficiently in many works, including Stephen Harper's book on the subject. Uh, but for this individual, there was still some, some hardship or conflict. After the interview was over and the recording ended, we continued our discussion. As we talked about Joseph Smith, he continued to rattle off the usual points of argument that I've heard during my days as a missionary in Louisiana, uh, all the way to some of the new issues that people seem to dedicate a, a good portion of their life to discovering. Uh, at, at one point, this individual made the statement, if members of the church knew the truth about Joseph Smith, they wouldn't be members. I asked him why he felt that way. He wasn't actually able to give me a real clear answer, but I, I believe the main crux of the statement was to the effect of, how can you follow such an imperfect prophet? My response was, was clear, and I felt the spirit of the response was beyond mere emotion of the moment but came from, from inspiration from the Holy Ghost. And it relates back to the message of, of Brother Rasband's talk, though perhaps not directly. I said, you spend some time, you spend some time serving and teaching individuals in, in prisons. And your book is about Jesus, how Jesus has no equal when it comes to providing the power and strength to these individuals to overcome the trials in their life and to be renewed 
in in spite of serious and grievous errors to themselves and and to to others if jesus can restore a wife beater a thief even to a, a certain extent the murderer why is it that you feel jesus is unable to see an imperfect prophet and have him remain as a prophet if not restore that prophet in his calling why is it that we feel we deserve to be forgiven for our shortcomings but are so unwilling to understand that imperfections are in all of us, including prophets and apostles, who are learning as we're all learning. I then took the moment to share my testimony. I said, I know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restored Church of Jesus Christ on the earth. I know that the Book of Mormon is a true book of Scripture, and I know that Joseph Smith was called to be a prophet of God. If Jesus Christ can restore the criminal of their serious harms to others and to themselves, why cannot Jesus Christ forgive his prophet and those who have dedicated their lives to preaching and sharing of his gospel for their faults? Even more poignantly, why do we not forgive them when we may discover those events that we may even interpret as their faults? They may not even be faults, but we may interpret them that way. I know that Jesus Christ can forgive all men and women. And any time that I, as an imperfect individual, think someone is outside of that power, I declare my lack of faith in his infinite atonement. I also know that along the way we will make mistakes. We will sin. We will cause harm to others. Regardless of, of how intentional any of these things may be, the infinite power of the atonement of Jesus Christ can bring restitution to my soul and those whom I have harmed. That same atonement can bring peace to the troubled mind of those who may have felt their discipleship has been injured by those faults that, that others have brought to pass. I can be made whole, and I should also seek to make others whole as well. It's my position that if spouses take the time to understand that our companions may have made some efforts that caused us harm or said something that caused us anger or to be injured and insulted in one way or another, we don't have to let those fester inside and tear apart our marriage. The atonement will help us to not look at each other as adversaries and not seek revenge or restitution from them but see them as teammates, as eternal companions, not adversaries. And that as we forgive our spouses their trespasses, we will more likely be forgiven of our trespasses. The atonement of Jesus Christ can make marriages whole. The atonement of Jesus Christ is real. It is profound. It is eternal and it is infinite. I encourage you again to listen to Brother James Rasband's talk in its entirety. Again, a link to that talk will be given with this post, or you can search James Rasband, BYU Devotional, and, and his talk, Faith to Forgive Grievous Harms, Accepting the Atonement as Restitution. It will likely be at the top of those search results. Please take the time to search out his message. Ponder on its meaning in your life. Remember that the promises that have been shared are not mine or Brother Rasband's. They are the promises that come from living the gospel of Jesus Christ and entrusting 
unceasingly in the atonement. May you find greater peace, greater understanding, and a greater love and connection with God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ as you take the time to take in the spirit of Brother Rasband's message. Thank you for listening, and I leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.